You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and with me today is Homer Hickam, the best-selling and award-winning author of many books, including the number one New York Times memoir, Rocket Boys, which was adapted into the popular film, October Sky. A writer since grade school, he has also been a coal miner, a Vietnam combat veteran, scuba instructor, paleontologist, and NASA engineer. Welcome. Well, thank you, Anna Maria. It's great to be here. Now, we're here today to talk about your new book, Carrying Albert Home, a novel and somewhat true story, which we'll get into that fact a little later, which is also being described as a prequel to Rocket Boys. And I've also heard it described as an emotionally evocative story about a man, a woman, and an alligator. And they say that it's funny, sweet, and sometimes tragic tale of a young couple and a special alligator on a crazy 1,000-mile adventure. I read it, and I loved it. Oh, thank you. So please set us set it up and tell us how it came to be that your parents owned and treated as a pet an alligator and then had to take this trip to return it to Florida. Well, first off, let me just say that um, funny, sweet, and tragic also explains me. Okay. That's me. Um, <laughs> but um, w- after Rocket Boys was, pu- was published, uh, I was asked to go out and talk about really uh, not so much. You've you got to understand, Rocket Boys was never about rockets. It was about yeah. family. It was about people. What people were interested in, in is other people. So even though I've written all kinds of books, people always they tend to rush up to me and say, oh, Mr. Hickam, I loved your book. And I know exactly which book they're talking about. So when I go out and and make a speech, I tend to talk about that book. And uh, one of the ways that I came up with to kind of encapsulate my parents was to tell them the story of my mom's pet alligator, Albert. As I grew up, I started hearing about that she had a pet alligator. And what was that all about before, you know, before I was born and my brother was born? And it turned out that Albert, who grew to five feet long in the bathtub of my parents' house in Coldwood, West Virginia, deepest coal fields, was a gift of my mom's former boyfriend. And his name was Buddy Epson, who later became Uncle Jed and the Beverly Hillbillies yep. and Barnaby Jones and a lot of other things. So that surprised me. But what mostly surprised me was that my dad, uh, uh, who was terrified of anything reptilian, allowed something five feet long with lots of teeth and purely reptile to live in his bathroom for all these many, many years. All I know is that somewhere along the line, um, Homer, uh, Homer Sr., told Elsie, my mom, okay, Elsie, it's either me or this alligator. And after a few days of thinking it over... Yeah, she didn't, she didn't she make didn't a decision re- immediately, no, no. right? She paused. She had to think about it a little she, bit. Mm, let me think. Um, she, just, she said, okay, Homer, but we have to take him home. We have to take him back to Orlando, where he came from. From West Virginia. From, yeah, 800-mile journey. And back then, there were no interstates uh, from West Virginia to Florida. As a matter of fact, they're still not. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so 
that I knew. I knew that that happened. And I knew that in later years, my dad would be reading in the paper, and he would come across a story where an alligator down in Florida had uh, eaten a poodle or maybe uh, bit a gopher as they walked by, and he would yell out, Hey, Elsie, I got news of Albert, news of Albert. And my mom would just smile and say, I love that little boy. So I, I tell that story in my speeches, and everybody, then they understand uh, that uh, somehow something kept my mom and dad together, even though they were so different. My mom hated that little coal town. My dad adored that. He adored his life there in, in little Colwood, but then somehow they stayed together. So what was it? Ultimately, it was somewhere in that story about Albert that kept Elsie and Homer together. So uh, I proposed to my agent, uh, Frank Wyman, that since this was such a popular part of my speech, I would actually get applause for telling this story. Everybody loved it. That maybe, just maybe, I could write a novel about it and fill in the missing pieces between Colwood and Florida. What happened that, that ultimately ended up with, this, with love winning out in the end? And I thought Frank would tell me that's the dumbest idea I, that he ever heard. Instead, he said, I love that idea. Yeah. Write it. Yeah. And so I did. I'm so glad you did. I enjoyed it so much, and it was so successful in sort of transporting the reader back to that time period where there were no interstates, where they, they lose the map, the, the, the maps that they've gathered of each, that your dad has gathered of each state. They lose it within a few miles, and it's like, oh, all right, I'll keep the sun, you know, in, right. in a it'll certain rise, position. It'll rise on my left and sit on my right. I must be going in the right direction. And uh, there were so many instances where they, they fell into trouble, whether it was car trouble or, or various uh, medical needs, and, and strangers would help them. Of course, strangers would also injure them, but, um, you know, strangers would help them and receive them and share food and everything else. I, I thought it was... It was really charming and, and quite entertaining. I all of a sudden saw all these little pieces that I had been told over the years. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes the little pieces that they would tell me would change and become a little bit more outlandish. And so uh, it was a matter when I started writing this novel to, to try to put all those little stories together. Yeah. Um, like that. Somehow my mom got mixed up with... Uh, uh, moonshiners and and uh, and running liquor across the highways in North Carolina. What was all that about? And somehow there was this mention that there was a ghost in this house that that they knew about when they were. And it's like, when did that happen? Oh, when you were carrying Albert. Oh my God! So everything <laughs> so seemed to happen. Yeah. You could hardly name a town or uh, in the South that they hadn't been through while they were right. carrying Albert home. Uh, one of the things I, uh, my wife came up with the idea of getting actually a stuffed alligator, cute juvenile size alligator, and putting it in the back seat of our car. And, and wherever we went, we would carry Albert around. <laughs> we no called reality. him Albert, and we would carry him around. And it was like, okay, so we got Albert back there. What would we need to do? Well, Albert in the novel, and, and I think in, in reality, he'd love to hang his head out of the car window like a dog. You think in reality that they'd like to do that? I, and uh, you base that on I think on... Albert was a special alligator. <laughs> <laughs> he walks on a leash. Uh, you know, he has to. They walk him to go do and his business. And uh, describe know. the sound that he makes when he's happy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He makes a yeah, yeah, yeah. Sound. And they keep him very happy. That's their that's their primary concern. He's a cheerful boy. It's keeping he, Albert he happy. He is the cheer in their life. Yeah, and they don't realize that. Well, I think Elsie does, but Homer doesn't realize that. That uh, actually Albert is a source of great cheer in their life. And as you see. 
your mother and father sort of connecting and falling in love. You also see your father loving the alligator, and it kind of creeps up on him how yeah. fond he is and how yeah. how willing he is, right? To yeah. to well, he suddenly realizes him. that I don't want to give away too no, you much, can't. but you but I can tell you that Homer and Albert end up robbing a bank. They don't mean to. Well, there's a lot of bank robbers don't mean to. It just happened to be there, the opportunity. Well, but so, but in, in that process, um, he realizes that Albert's a pretty swell guy after all. Yeah. And it wasn't, Elsie was nowhere around. It was just Homer and Albert. And yeah. they were a good team, as it turned good out. Good team. Now, um, there are different scenes where your mother is presented with crazy situations. And she says, oh, I always wanted to be an actress, or, oh, I always wanted to fly a plane, which sort of reminds me of, of your career. This I, <laughs> I see this is where you got it now, because tell us a little bit about the, A, about all the different types of books that you write, but these these previous careers that you've had. Well, I am my mother's son. There's no question about it. And and growing up, Mom, uh, you could hardly mention a profession that she didn't say, I always wanted to be that, whatever it was. Well, my mom got hold of me when I was about four years old and taught me to read, and I, I loved to read. I was really nearsighted. They didn't realize that till the fourth grade. I had like 2,400 vision in both eyes. Wow. I was essentially blind, and wow. and people uh, just thought that I was stupid because I would walk into trees and that kind of thing. So I, I kept a book in my face, all, like three inches away, which nobody ever noticed, but nevertheless. <laughs> but I, I, I grew up reading all these adventure stories and everything, and I, I wanted to have a life of adventure and uh, it took me a while to figure out what all that would be and I guess I'm still kind of trying to figure it out. I always knew I wanted to be a writer. Uh, Well starting from the third grade my uh, teacher Mrs. Laird said that someday I'd make my living as a writer. Oh lovely. And I thought to myself why wait I could use the money now (laughs) and I actually started a little newspaper. I charged a penny, script penny, that's, that's the fake money that coal companies put out. Uh, for for each newspaper, and I later wrote for the college newspaper at Virginia Tech, but uh, I didn't really get started on my writing career till I came back from from Vietnam. Yeah. So I, I was one of those guys that got uh, I was perfectly timed in terms imperfectly timed, and I graduated from uh, Virginia Tech in 1964, just as Vietnam yeah, was starting went, to, heat, to right heat up. Over. And um, uh, Virginia Tech was a military uh, college back then, and so there was no question that I was going, and so I ended up over there. But when I came back, uh, I had an engineering degree. Uh, I ended up going to work for the Army Missile Command and then NASA, which was kind of my boyhood dream. But I wanted to write, and so I started to freelance write. And, uh, and you I, wrote about scuba diving yeah. mostly at the beginning? Yeah, I was a scuba instructor, so I was reading all these magazines like Skin Diver and Sport Diver, and I thought that they were kind of amateurishly written. I thought, I can do better than that. So I, suddenly I had a market, and, and I started writing for them mostly. But then I was able to branch out in military history because we were, I was diving on these uh, U-boats off North Carolina, German U-boats that came over here during World War II. And that ultimately led to uh, writing my first book, Torpedo Junction, mm-hmm. which was a national bestseller. It, uh, yeah. I thought that was the book I was meant to write because it took me over 15 years of research and actually diving on those U-boats uh, to get all that information. I, actually, I moved to Germany for three years to, to uh, 
uh, I was working for the Army over there, but I did it primarily so I could interview all these U-boat uh, crewmen and so on. So it took all that time and effort to write Torpedo Junction. I thought, boy, that's it. I can't imagine doing that and again. And so I just started to freelance right after that again for a bunch of magazines. Uh, Smithsonian Air and Space was the one, the article that I wrote that ultimately evolved into Rocket, Rocket Boys Place. because people read that article about me building rockets and, and little Colwood and uh, New York publishers and Hollywood started to call and they said, are you going to write a book about this? And I said, I guess I am now. Yeah. The one other aspect of my uh, career that you mentioned paleontology. Yes. I'll tell you real quick how that happened. I want to hear. Uh, <laughs> the director of October Sky is Joe Johnston. And uh, he also directed a little movie called Jurassic Park 3. Mm -hmm. And he was out in Montana uh, researching uh, with uh, Dr. Horner, Jack Horner, who uh, is the, uh, the expert for all the Jurassic Park movies. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of invited myself out there, and I fell in love with it. it was, I'm a West Virginia boy. I can tell the difference between a rock and a bone. And the next thing I know, uh, uh, I was bringing in little bones of T-Rexes. And mm -hmm. Horner was going, where did you find those? I've been oh, all over that area, and I've never found it. Well, it's like. Uh, yeah, but I don't know where where it's supposed to be, so I climb up on places where you don't yeah, go. <laughs> but you might not instinctually go. So uh, so far, I've found uh, three T Rexes. And, no way. Uh, yeah. This no. is just this is just reminding me so much of your of your mother in this yeah. in this book. Though, where I always she, wanted to she be picks, a paleontologist. She picks everything, <laughs> anything that she wants to do. She learns and she executes quickly and, ex and extremely well. Well, in the first place, Mom said uh, after the movie came out, October Sky, that if she had known I was going to make her famous, she would have stayed younger and skinnier. Uh, she, she, and and she was uh, well into her eighties by then. She lived to be ninety-seven. Yeah. And uh, I think her last thoughts were were of Albert. And uh, and because that was such a big event in their life, it became a family legend. Sure. The story of yeah. carrying Albert home, how they did that. And ultimately, I think that when I pieced it all together, I realized that it was not just a funny, endearing story, which it is, of, of this young couple. They were in their early 20s. And this crazy alligator with, for no apparent reason, a rooster. The rooster's uh, true, huh? Yeah, the rooster in the back seat. We never quite understood. And I, and I confessed in the, in, in the novel that I frankly don't understand why they kept mentioning the rooster. <laughs> but for, for the rooster, no name, uh, but uh, he, made, uh, he made the trip. Um, but ultimately, this was a story of love. Yeah. It was a story also of the imperfectness of love and also its imperfectibility. Um, people who expect love to be perfect, they're forever going to be disappointed. Yeah. And so this story will tell you how an imperfect love can work and did. That's so nice. So tell us a little bit about how you have experienced publishing changing in these I, I always ask authors with a long career because I think it's changed so much and and what is your perspective on having published your first book many years ago and now a, a current a current book yeah well um, uh, a couple of answers to that first I am a publisher's nightmare oh really yes because I heard that about yes, you I am because <laughs> I don't um, I don't stick with my brand. 
I, you know, yeah, you uh, what people wanted to do was, I mean, really, people wanted, just wanted me to write Rocket Boys over and over again, right. and I just, I just yeah. couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, I, I, w- I would have lost any freshness that I had to it. So I, I wrote the, the Coldwood Way and Sky of Stones as sequels, and then I got off on other things. And in the process of doing that, I, I changed publishers because I was going in different uh, directions. Uh, during that time, of course, the, the big revolution, as we all know, is uh, e-books uh, and, and the possibility of publishing an author could, can publish Probably themselves. I mean, it's it's tempting because you see it. It's like, oh, I, I wrote it here. Here it is, and yeah. I'll have to just push this button, and everybody will get it. Well, you know, that's that's just that's not me. I I I, I love the, having a traditional publisher. I, I love to have the support of a traditional publisher, the access to all the bookstores, um, and I think traditional publishing uh, is going to be around for a very very long time. There are some authors that that do quite well just yeah. writing ebooks, uh, but. Uh, but but that to me is the big change in the fact that the the, the brick and mortar stores are going away. But here's kind of the cool thing: uh, the big brick and mortar chains, yes, um, uh, some of them have gone under. But uh, now we're seeing the uh, independents start yeah, to pop up because somebody's well, yeah. got to service uh, these little towns. There are an awful lot of people that don't want to read uh, books electronically. Yeah. They still want to have that, uh, or that, who want access to the author and and. Yeah. The stores will host them, or yeah. just a place to browse and to, to discover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's just a great place to hang out. You know, I, I love going into bookstores and sitting there and and um, reading bestsellers. Going, why is this a bestseller and mine's not? And mine's a lot better. But you know, that's that, <laughs> that's one of the things that uh, if you're not care- you're not careful as an author, you lose the joy of reading because uh, yeah, you, you're, you, you're sort of. You're comparing. Processing it, yeah. 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 You're, you're going, okay, this is really dull, and that's kind of the way I wrote something, and that, I bet that was dull, too. I had too much, too much, you know, whatever it was. Or, wow, this author is making me turn the page. What is she doing that's making me want to turn the page here? So I'm analyzing it. Yeah. Uh, but I still have a joy of reading. That's the, when I go to sleep at night, it's with a book gradually well, collapsing in my face. <laughs> well, this is a question that I actually ask every author. Were you to be banished to a desert island and you could take three books, which three would you take? Um, I would take um, I would take Steinbeck's Cannery Row and could I, could I tag Sweet Thursday on with that, which was the sequel. Make that part of, part of it. Uh, Huckleberry Finn, I, I would still dissect uh, a million times. And uh, I, would, I would probably uh, take The Brothers Karamazov as the uh, third one. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah uh, there is so much one. in that one that I could, uh, uh, I mean, there's about a thousand stories within yeah. uh, the pages, uh, the covers of that book that I, that I would love. Those are beautiful choices. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was really fun, and thank you for the book. Thank you very much, Anna Maria. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. This episode was edited by Kat Theck with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from the leading figures across books, culture, and the arts. All brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.